Let's bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for all that you do. We pray that we would always seek you and put you first and honor you in all ways. Father, we thank you for the blessings we, um, you've given to each one of us. And we would ask a special prayer uh, today for Sister Nancy uh, White and also Brother Daryl Artman that you'd be with them both and, and all those that are struggling today, uh, physically, spiritually, whatever it is, that you'd be with them and help them and bring them to healing and uh, recovery once more. And Father, we just thank you and we give you all praise in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Amen. Y'all may be seated. I would ask, um, just as a side note, to uh, certainly keep Sister Nancy and Brother Daryl in prayer. Both of them aren't doing too well right now. So just to keep them in prayer. We know there's others as well. So, um, yeah, I generally uh, pray that Yahweh would be with those who are hurting. Yahweh knows. But certainly we know that Sister Nancy and Brother Daryl's hurting right now. So let's uh, lift them up in prayer. Today I want to talk about something we, we... we're all familiar with, and those fables of the church. The majority of those here, here and those listening at some point came out of what we might call mainstream Christianity. Some say nominal worship. At some point, though, you realized that what you were being taught was not right, that there just wasn't something right with what you believed and what was being shared and taught. Instead, you realized that these were simply um, fables, of the church. Now, I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do. This could be part one of many parts, or it may just be part one, and that's it. We'll see. As a believer, we're told to prove all things. This includes, I believe, everything we believe, everything we hold as truth, everything we believe in. Sometimes we call these things doctrines. Now, what is that? Or the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines this word as, quote, a principle or position or the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or system of belief. A doctrine is simply a belief we hold based on religious conviction or understanding. And as believers, it's important that we, we make sure that we vet what we believe is truth. It's important that we prove what we believe based on the Bible and not man's ideas. It's crucial. The truth is, much of what we see in the church is based, not on scripture, but 2,000 years of tradition. And much of this occurred through tradition. Part of the purpose of this ministry is to return back to what the Bible says, to teach the truth of what we find in Scripture. For those new to this ministry, maybe this is your first time, I would encourage you to stay with it, to listen, to study, and to really consider what is being said. Listen, We encourage here to prove all things. Don't take our word for it. Prove it. Look it up. Study it out. Because at the end of the day, if you do this, I believe you're going to come to the same conclusions we have come to here in this ministry. Things like our Father has a name. Things like the Sabbath is still the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is important. Things like the feast days are still valid. Things like the dietary food laws are still very much in vogue today. So again, this message is entitled Fables of the church. Now, today I want to focus on four specific fables. Fable one is a belief that the saints are raptured before the tribulation. Fable two is a belief that the saints are taken to heaven. These are some pretty big fables. Fable three is a belief that we, the wicked, are taken to a place called hell or hellfire. And fable four is the belief that the wicked will then burn forever and ever without any relief. So let's begin with this belief that the saints are raptured before the tribulation. Before we open up to scripture, what is a rapture? Well, the rapture is a belief that the saints will secretly be raptured or carried away to heaven prior to the tribulation. Now, some say prior to the seven-year tribulation. Some say it it occurs midway through during the three and a half years of the great tribulation. Whatever, whatever, um, (laughs) both are wrong as we'll see, but there are, there are different beliefs. But essentially, it is this concept that the saints or the believers will be taken to heaven, raptured secretly. So just in an instant, you're here, and then you're gone. And you've seen the movies. You're riding in a bus, and half the people in the bus disappear, and they're raptured to heaven. Where the truth is, the Bible never promises that anybody will be raptured to heaven. This is a fable that is certainly not based 
on Scripture. And I want to share a few passages that proponents of the rapture will share as support for this belief. Probably the passage most often used is 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 16. It says, For the master himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of Elohim, and the dead of Messiah shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the master in the air, and so shall we ever be with the master. Those who believe in the rapture will make the case here that Paul is describing a secret coming in which, again, the saints will be carried away or raptured unawares, and they're going to be taken to heaven. The key phrase here for them is caught up. This word is from the Greek harpazo. The Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this word as, one, to seize, to carry off by force, two, to seize on, to claim for oneself eagerly, and three, to snatch out or to snatch away. Now, there's no denying there is a snatching up or a snatching away, but again, not as they believe. So does this phrase and Paul's statement here prove that the Messiah is coming back to a secret rapture? Where the answer is no. What then is Paul describing? For number one, it's important again to note that Herpazo simply implies Yahshua is going to snatch or raise the elect at his coming. doesn't say Herpazo is going to raise the dead or the living or both and take them to heaven. There's nothing to say that here. Number two, from the description, it should be clear that this is anything but a secret. It's not a secret. Paul says here that Yahshua's coming will be announced how? He says it's going to be announced by the shout of the archangel and by the trumpet or the trump of Elohim. Now think about that for just a moment. We're going to have the shout of an archangel and we're going to have a trumpet blowing. Does that sound unawares? Does that sound as if nobody's going to realize what is occurring? Now the whole point of the trumpet and the sound of an archangel is to alarm the world of what is occurring, and that is Yahshua's coming. This is a reference to Yahshua's second coming. The other issue here is that Yahshua says here he's going to resurrect the dead first, followed by the living. You know, many, they, they never realize this. They never acknowledge this or think about it. Why? Why, if they are raptured to heaven to protect them during the tribulation, why rapture the dead? What's the purpose in rapturing the dead, snatching away the dead, if the purpose, again, is to protect them during the tribulation? Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9.5 said, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. The dead are unaware. So again, if the dead are unaware, why rapture them first to heaven and then the living? Or it doesn't make sense. There's no reason behind this. The dead would be unaware of what is occurring. And yet it says here that the dead are resurrected first, then the living. So again, what is this describing? It's describing the second coming of our Savior. It's describing the second coming of Yahshua the Messiah. So what's the difference between his second coming and the rapture? What's the difference? So it really comes down to two words, time and destination. So when... Does it occur, and where are we going? Those who believe in the rapture would say that after the tribulation, or that before the tribulation, that they're going to be raptured to heaven. Well, the Bible shows that when Yahshua comes, it's going to be after the tribulation. So again, one occurs po- or pre-tribulation, the other occurs post-tribulation. One is going to heaven, and as we know from Scripture, when Yahshua comes back, he's coming back to this to the earth, to this world. The Bible says that the saints will dwell on earth. Revelation 5.10 specifically says that the saints will dwell on earth as a kingdom of priests. So again, this concept of a rapture simply is a fable. We, we don't find it. We don't see it. It's not supported. It's contradictory to Scripture. There's nothing confirming a secret snatching away to heaven. Now, they also use another passage in Matthew 24. 
It's real easy to disprove, by the way, but we'll look at it. Matthew 24, we're going to look first at 40 through 42. It says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding in the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your master does come. What do we find here? Well, we find here that one is taken and one is left. Now, according to the rapture advocates, those who are taken are taken to heaven, and those who are left then are left on earth to deal with the consequences of the rapture or the, the, the tribulation. But is that what Yahshua is describing here? Is he saying here, is he teaching that the one who is taken is taken to heaven? while the other is left on earth to suffer the horrors of the tribulation. Well, it's not what he's talking about here. And for evidence of that, let's back up and begin with verse 36. Matthew 24, 36 through 39 says, But of that day and hours know no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Think about that for just a moment for those Trinitarians. Many believe, most believe, that the Father and Son are the same deity, they're the same being. For Yahshua here says, no man knows the time of his coming, but only the Father. Why wouldn't the Son know if they're the same being? Just a thought. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So this is referring to Yahshua's second coming. To his second coming. For as in the days of Noah... For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not, until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What comparison is the Messiah here making? What is he connecting this coming and this, if you will, rapture or taking with? Or he compares it with the flood of Noah. Just as people were eating, drinking, and giving in marriage and doing anything but for following Yahweh during the days of Noah, we see the same thing today. And we're going to see the same thing before Yahshua's coming, but it's going to get worse, even worse than what it is now. In many ways, again, I believe we're seeing these signs in our own day and age. People today, they have no fear for Yahweh. They have no respect for Yahweh. They have no reverence for Yahweh. Nobody wants to follow Yahweh. Nobody wants to do his word. Nobody wants to follow in his ways. Why? Because it requires commitment. It requires change. It requires a different way of life. And people today, they want to do what they want to do. It's a rebellious generation, just as was in the days of Noah, just as was during the days of Yahshua, and just as it will be right before Yahshua's coming. Now, what happened to those who were taken in the flood of Noah and Noah's flood? What, what happened? Were they raptured to heaven? Were they raptured into an ark? No, they were killed. They were taken out by the flood. They died by the flood. But this will be the same fate for those who rebel against Yahweh during this time. Those who rebel against Yahweh, the point is, the ones taken, they're going to be taken to their death just as those during the flood of Noah were. So as we see here, Yahshua is not referring to a secret rapture, but to the demise of those who would defy Yahweh's word, to the demise of those who is going to live life as if there is no creator, to those who will show no reverence, to those who will show no fear, to those who will show no respect to the one that they worship or the one that, that, who created them. They will meet their end as those did during the time of Noah. It's amazing how much truth, by the way, when, that we can learn if we simply read the context of Scripture. Here, again, if we simply read Scripture and the surrounding passages, again, we see the meaning. Nothing to do with the rapture. It's quite the opposite. It has everything to do with being taken to our death when we defy Yahweh's word, as those did during the days of Noah. I want to move on now to our second fable, and that is a belief that the saints, believers, are taken to heaven. For many, this may be quite a shock. After all, the vast majority around the world, including most religions, believe that they're going to some sort of heavenly place, but that's not what we find in Scripture. The reality is very different. 
In fact, we find Yahshua the Messiah saying the very opposite in John chapter 3, verse 13. It says, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Think about that for just a moment. Yahshua says here, No man, no man has ascended to heaven except he who came down from heaven, he who descended from heaven. We know that our Savior is referring to himself here when he says, He who descended from heaven. You see, Yahshua was in heaven before he, before he came as a man. He pre-existed, and he was with Yahweh, and then he came down from heaven. And we also know that he came, went back to heaven after his death. So what do we find here? We find that no man has gone to heaven except for who? Except for the Messiah. The phrase here, no man, just, just, to, just to make sure there's no confusion, comes from the Greek odais which according to Strong's means not even one man, woman, or thing, none and nobody, nothing. That's the Greek based on the Strong's, the Greek definition. No one. When Yahshua says no man has ascended to heaven, he was saying no person, no man, no woman, no child, no one has ascended to heaven. You know, it's amazing, though, how theologians will twist passages as this one to continue with their fables. I want to share an example with you. I mean, there's many examples, although most explain it in this way. So this example is from the Expositor's Greek uh, Testament, which is a pretty good source. I mean, it's not a bad source, but here, obviously, I disagree. So the connection is, you have not believed earthly things, much less will you believe those which are heavenly. Fear not only only are they in their own nature more difficult to understand. But there is none to testify of them, save only the one who came down out of heaven. The sentence may be paraphrased thus. No one has gone up to heaven, and by dwelling there gained a knowledge of the heavenly things. Only one has dwelt there and is able to communicate that knowledge, that is, he who came down from heaven, presence in heaven, is considered to be the ground and qualification for communicating trustworthy information regarding heavenly things. Now, he was speaking to Nicodemus prior to this about heavenly things, but that's not what he says here. He doesn't say that here. Well, I certainly believe that Yahshua's special knowledge or insight that we may never have, and maybe someday, but certainly not now. This commentary is distorting the meaning of this passage, just adding, adding a lot <laughs> to this passage, again, to make it fit. It doesn't say here that the Messiah's special knowledge, because he was in heaven and then came down to share that knowledge. What it says, again, is that no man has ascended to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. That's what it says. But again, theologians will twist things, add things, to try to make it fit. And we find a second witness to this in Acts 2, verse 29. And also 34 says, Men and brethren, let me... Freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchres with us unto this day. For David is not, listen, for David is not ascended into the heavens. Now, if anyone would have been found worthy of going to heaven, don't you suppose it would have been King David? We know King David made his mistakes, but King David was a great man. We know that he had a heart after Yahweh's own. We know that Yahweh loved him tremendously. We know that he had a relationship with Yahweh that few ever had and will ever have. We also know, based on prophecy, biblical prophecy, that King David will rule in the millennium over the Israelites. And Ezekiel 37, 24 says, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. By the way, that's one reason why I believe Ezekiel 37 and on is prophetic, is prophecy. Some say it's a conditional promise. No, it says here that David during this time is going to rule. I'm sorry, that's not a a conditional promise during the time that this was given. This is a prophetic promise that will happen, but it will happen in the millennium. Knowing this, you would think that if anyone had ascended to heaven, it would have been this man. It would have been King David. That if anyone would have been found worthy to be ascended into heaven, it would have been King David. But it says here, 
Again, quite the opposite here that David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens. In fact, it says, it goes on, it says his tomb is even with us today. So in addition to Yahshua and John 3.13, we find more evidence here showing that no man has gone to heaven. You see, there's a resurrection. And so many people, they miss that truth. In fact, how many ministers do you even hear talking about the resurrection? Maybe at a funeral, they'll talk about the resurrection. Not sure why, because they're already in heaven. So what's the point of the resurrection? Some say they have to come back to gather their bodies. Why? Why would you want to take your old body back if you're already in heaven? That doesn't make sense. Nobody acknowledges going to the resurrection. It's all about heaven. And yet the Bible focuses what? The Bible focuses on the resurrection. Now, I'm not going to give the message here on the resurrection, but there are so many passages talking about the resurrection, dissecting the resurrection, explaining the resurrection, describing the resurrection, how and when it occurs and who's in it. But nothing really, yes, it'd be amusing in some ways to ask a minister, what do you do in heaven? We know the common imagery of playing a harp or whatnot, but, but anyway, there's certainly no evidence of, of heaven. It's all, it's all talking about the resurrection. You know, the only indication of anything going to heaven, if you were going to Yahweh, is where it says in Ecclesiastes 12.7 that our spirit returns to Yahweh. That's the only place. It says, there then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, our bodies, in other words, and the spirit shall return unto Elohim who gave it. Now, the word spirit here is from the Hebrew ruach. It refers to the breath of life. In fact, the, the meaning of ruach is wind, wind, and it can refer to breath. It can refer to a lot of things, but the primary meaning is wind. But in this case, it refers to the breath of life but not to our consciousness. Why? And how do we know that? Psalms 146, verse 4, we know that. It says there his breath goes forth. You see his breath, his ruach goes forth. We know from Ecclesiastes 12, 7, it goes to Yahweh. And then it says he, retur- he returned to the earth, as we also find in Ecclesiastes. But then it says in that very day his thoughts perish. You see, in that very day he ceases to exist. He's no longer conscious. She's no longer conscious. So from this, we find that when a person passes, that when they die, that their spirit returns to Yahweh, their ruach, their breath of life, that their bodies decompose back to the earth, and they wait in the grave in an unconscious state for the resurrection. That's what we find in scripture. Well, let's move on now to our third fable. And that is the belief that the wicked are taken to a place called hell. For the most part, it's important to understand the connection we have between the, Hebrew, between the Greek and Hebrew on this. So we're going to focus a lot between the languages, the meaning of the words, and we'll see some scriptural evidence as well. So let's talk about what we find first within the Greek. As many of you know, this word hell is translated from the Greek word Gehenna. So here's how uh, this is defined from uh, the Strong's. It says Gehenna goes on to say first of Hebrew origin, 1516 and 2011, Valley of the Son of Hinnom. We'll talk a lot about the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna, a valley of Jerusalem used figuratively as a name for the place or state of everlasting punishment. So number one, it's important to recognize here that Gehenna is of Hebrew origin, it says goes back to the Valley of Hinnom. It also says here that this is a place of uh, everlasting punishment. Notice it doesn't say punishing. I, I will confess, I believe here the intent is to convey that meaning, but we don't see this in Scripture. We don't see this in Scripture. This thought of everlasting punishing or punishment, as you might want to say, this is more Greek mythology. This is more Greek or Hellenistic influence. This is not something we find in the Bible. As we'll see in the Bible, this phrase is more of a euphemism for Yahweh's complete destruction. There are so many examples of this. In fact, when I say Yahweh's complete destruction, I, I, I'm uh, listening to an audiobook. It's a church, um, uh, what is it called? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Church theology or something, but it's kind of complicated, a bit boring and dry, but it's good content. But it's, it was talking about the differences and belief with, with, uh, with death. 
So what we believe here is essentially, theologically, it's called annihilationism. That's what we believe, is annihilationism. So here's a description of this term, annihilationism, from the Oxford Handbook of Eschatology. Eschatology, by the way, is a study of prophecy or study of the end. It says, in Christian theology, annihilationism designates the view of those who hold that the finally impenitent wicked will cease to exist. I think I have this, yes. Will cease to exist or soon after the last judgment. Annihilation is a term designating theories which contend that human beings may pass or be put out of existence altogether. And that's what it means. It means that when we die in the final death, when the wicked are judged, that they will be annihilated from existence. They will be destroyed from existence. They will not burn forever as so many believe. So here's how Thayer defines this term, Gehenna. Getting back to Gehenna, it says, Hell is a place of the future punishment called Gehenna or Gehenna of fire. This was originally the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem. So again, we see this connection with the Valley of Hinnom. We'll talk more about that. Where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned. A fit symbol of the wicked and their future destruction, it says. It, it is interesting here, it says destruction, indication of some annihilationism, even though they may not have meant to uh, uh, quite convey that. So Thayer's defines Gehenna as a place of, says, future torment and destruction. It also points out the word Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is south, on the south side of Jerusalem, and this is where Israel would have disposed of their trash. I've been there twice, gotten to see it twice. Actually, it's quite scenic now. The last thing I want to point out here is it describes Gehenna as a place of future destruction for the wicked. Again, notice it does not say a place of perpetual torment here. Although, again, I do believe they probably are trying to convey that thought, but it says destruction. Now, what about this Valley of Hinnom? What is the Valley of Hinnom? Well, the Valley of Hinnom is a long valley that sits on the south side of the city of Jerusalem. Now, Ryan actually showed some pictures of this Deacon Ryan here recently and uh, showed the actual valley. And again, on the south side, it's very scenic. It looks like a park now. Lots of grass, very pretty. But originally, this was a place where Israel would throw their trash. So, as you might assume, by the way, they also sacrificed their children, as Ryan also spoke about, to the God of Molech. But today, it, it is not that, but originally it was a place where the garbage was dumped, and for this reason, the trash or the valley was always burning. It was perpetually burning. And this is where Christianity receives this notion of an ever-burning hellfire, because if you continually throw trash into a, a valley, where it's going to ever burn. And that's exactly what we find historically. Now, there are two other words I want to explore, and that is Sheol and Hades. Sheol, which is Hebrew, it appears 66 times in the Old Testament and is rendered in the KJV as grave, hell, and pit, mostly grave. Strong's defines it as Hades or the world of the dead, as if a subterranean retreat, including its accessories and inmates. The uh, word Hades is found 11 times in the KJV and is rendered hell, except for 1 Corinthians 15.55, where it's rendered grave. Strong's defines it as a place, a state of departed souls. Now, according to Strong's, both Sheol and Hades refers to the world of the dead or to a place of departed souls. Now, the fact is both of these definitions are grounded, again, more in Greek mythology, more in Hellenistic thought, than scripture. The word Sheol occurs 66 times again in the Old Testament, but in the majority of those times it simply is rendered the grave. Sheol, based on the Hebrew thought, refers to a pit or to a grave, not to this subterranean place of departed souls where they just kind of languish. You know, the other thing to see here is that Sheol was both for the righteous and the wicked. It's an important concept to recognize. It was for both the righteous and the wicked. The fact that both the righteous and the wicked are in Sheol shows that this is not a place of torment. If so, the righteous would not go, right? Why would the righteous go to a place of perpetual torment? 
But it says here that this is a place for both the righteous and the wicked. Again, Sheol simply refers to the grave, to the pit. And Hades is closely related. We find this fact from a book entitled What Christians Believe, a Biblical and Historical Summary. I wanted to share that with you. It says in the intertestamental period, so between the testaments, there were significant developments in eschatological themes. In other words, there was a lot of changes in theology dealing with in time and dealing with prophecy. That's what it's saying. It's kind of a lot of big words there. That's all it's saying is between the New Testaments or between the Testaments, there was a lot of changes in mindset and doctrine. The first relates to the development of a compartmental view of Sheol. You see, that wasn't original. But as time went on, or as it explains here, there were a place for the good or for the righteous and a place then for the wicked. It says when the righteous and the wicked die, they go to different places. The Bible doesn't say that. But again, this happened gradually. This is to be contrasted with the Old Testament view that Sheol is a place where both the righteous and wicked go. You see, both righteous and wicked go to Sheol. Not just, and there's no different rooms in Sheol. It's the same room, same place. It's a pit, it's a grave. It's not even a room. Under the growing influence of Greek concepts of a distinct body and soul, listen, of the growing influence of the Greek, Concepts, that is crucial to recognize. Under the growing influence of Greek, you see, the Greeks were coming in, the Hellenistic influence was creeping in, and we know that during the Maccabees, during the Seleucid Empire, there was a lot of Greek, there was a lot of Greek and Hellenistic influence. It says, anyway, under the growing influence of Greek concepts of, of a distinct body and soul, you see, that wasn't understood, of this body and soul distinction. That wasn't understood. It says some Jews taught that after death, the immortal and perishable soul, which again is a Greek concept, once detached from the ties of the flesh and thus freed from bondage, flies happily upwards. And thus a quote from Flavius Josephus. says, on the other hand, the wicked go to Sheol, which is now identified with the Greek Hades. So there's a connection between Sheol and Hades. This region of damnation is also called Gehenna. So they lump it all together. And of course, we know that Gehenna is just a valley. That's what it is, the Valley of Hinnom. So it's a place of eternal fire, originally, originally the old rubbish heap, and a place of child sacrifice south of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It was known as the Valley of Hinnom. Now, as we've already talked about, we see here the Sheol and Hades share the same meaning. They're connected. And we also see here the Sheol was a place for both originally the the righteous and the wicked. And over time, between the Testaments, they developed this concept of different rooms, different areas, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. And again, the one for the wicked became connected with Gehenna or a lake of fire. But again, we don't see this. Do, do study it out. We don't see this. In the Old Testament with, with Sheol, this is a grave. This is a grave. And, and Hades is connected with Sheol. It's the grave. But again, this Greek influence came in and changed the concepts that were understood in the Old Testament. We also see here this concept of an immortal soul. This isn't biblical. This came much later. We know that the Greeks... Certainly believe this, that there was a distinct body and soul, and this was passed on to the Jews, to many of the Jews, and eventually crept into Christianity. Historically, this concept of the immortal soul, I believe, goes back to Egypt, at least from what I can tell. As we know, they had an elaborate view of the afterlife. In fact, they say Egypt was one of the first first, uh, first uh, religions, if you will, to have a concept, a complicated concept of the afterlife. As we see here, again, this was a, this was a Hellenistic influence that changed the meaning of Sheol and, and Hades, which was adopted by the Jews, and then again crept into a Christianity. But again, the one theme we find with all of this is this connection with the Valley of Hinnom. It is so crucial that we understand this concept of the Valley of Hinnom 
because the valley of Hinnom is connected with this thought of fire that will not be quenched, and yet we know that it was quenched, and we're going to see examples of that. So it doesn't make sense to say that this unquenchable if we know that it was quenched. And well, again, we'll see some examples. In fact, I want to move on and uh, transition to our final fable, and that is this notion of an ever-burning hell of fire. And I want to, again, start with the Old Testament, and then we'll work ourselves into, into, you know, into the New Testament. So Jeremiah 7, verse 20, we find there this notion of fire that is not quenched. But it's so important that we understand the context. It says, Therefore, thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast, upon the trees of the field and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. What is Jeremiah speaking about here? He's referring to Judah's pending destruction by the Babylonians. It says here, shall burn and shall not be quenched. And we know today that Judah and Jerusalem, they're no longer burning. But it says here that through the Babylonians, that Yahweh would, that Yahweh would burn Judah and Jerusalem and that it would not be quenched. But we know today that it's quenched. So what's the, uh, what do we learn from this? Or the phrase, it shall burn and it shall not be quenched, does not always mean forever. It just simply means until Yahweh's word has been fulfilled as the punishment or the, or the destruction has been complete. As we know scripturally, the Jews spent 70 years in Babylonian exile for their sin and rebellion. And then after that, after the 70 years were accomplished, Yahweh brought them back to the land through the efforts of the Persians, the Medo-Persia. And again, at that point, Judah was no longer burning. But it says here that Yahweh was going to send the Babylonians, that he was going to destroy the city, that he's going to burn the city, and that that fire would not be quenched. And yet we know historically that that fire was quenched. When we see this phrase, it shall not be quenched, it simply means that it's not going to be quenched until Yahweh's will or purpose has been accomplished or fulfilled. That's what it means. We see some other examples of this. Jeremiah 17, for instance, 27, verse 27, says, But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day, notice how important the Sabbath day is, by the way. It says, if you don't listen to me and you show respect and reverence to my Sabbath and not to bear a burden on the Sabbath, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Now we know historically that they did not honor the Sabbath. We know historically that they continued to rebel against Yahweh. And we know historically that Yahweh brought the Babylonians and destroyed Jerusalem. We know all of that historically, but we know it scripturally. And it says here that when this took place, that the fires would not be quenched. So do we find fires burning today in Jerusalem, perpetual fires, never-ending fires? No, we don't see that. Again, perpetual fire, this concept of this, uh, where it says it shall not be quenched, is simply a way to say that the fire will not be quenched, will not go out until Yahweh's purpose and his will has been fulfilled and completed. And of course, in the instance of Israel or Judah, we know that that was certainly fulfilled because, again, they were brought into exile. I want to share one more example like this. This one's from Ezekiel 20. Now, we have three good witnesses here, three good witnesses all talking about his fire that is not quenched, historically speaking. You know, if this was prophetically speaking, it would be different. But this is historically speaking, so we can go back and ask, is fire still burning? Or we know, we know that fire is not burning. Ezekiel 20, 47 through 48 says this. It says, And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, Behold, I will kindle a fire in thee, and it shall devour every green tree in thee, and every dry tree, the flaming fire, shall not be quenched. There it is, again, the fire shall not be quenched. And all faces of the south to the north shall be burned therein, and all flesh shall see that I, Yahweh, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Ezekiel hears prophesying the same message that we saw in Jeremiah. The only difference, by the way, is that Ezekiel's prophecy occurred after the Babylonians came, so he was in exile while Jeremiah was not uh, prophesying before that. But nonetheless, it's the same message. 
And the message here is the same. The message is either repent or suffer the consequences. Now, what are the consequences we find here? Well, the consequences here is that Yahweh said that he is going to come and he is going to consume. He is going to kindle a fire. And he says that that fire shall not be quenched. That is a consequence for this rebellion. Well, we know that Babylon eventually burned Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. We also know that, again, Yahweh eventually brought them back. And we know historically that the fires were not burning. And yet it says here that the fire would not be quenched. Just for redundancy, I will say it one more time. When we see this phrase, shall not be quenched, all it's conveying is that the fire is not going to go out until Yahweh's will has been accomplished and completed. That's all it's saying. It's not literally, literally saying that the fire will never stop burning. The fire will continue to burn until Yahweh's will, until his purpose has been achieved. You know, over this one point, and I say one point, but it might be the only point, seems like us and the Pope may agree. Now, I know that may surprise you. And it might surprise a lot of people. Now, the church would deny this. But anyway, there was a 2018 article that came out in Newsweek. I want to share it with you. It says here, uh, the Catholic Pope Francis made a startling revelation Thursday by stating that hell did not exist. In an interview with a leading liberal Italian newspaper seemingly going Against centuries of core Christian belief, Pope Francis said the souls of sinners simply vanished after death and were not subject to an eternity of punishment. They are not punished. Those who repent obtain the forgiveness of G.O.D., he says, and enter the rank of souls who contemplate him. But those who do not repent and cannot therefore be forgiven disappear, Pope Francis said, is translated by Catholic blog, Marita something to that effect anyway, says there is, quote, there is no hell, there is the disappearance of sinful souls, he added. So I'm going to say that one more time, or you see it on the slide. There is no hell, there is the disappearance of sinful souls. Well, that's annihilationism. That is what we call theologically annihilationism. And evidently, Pope Francis believes in annihilationism. As we do. Now, here's the, here's the, uh, this kind of reminded me of what we see with the current administration, by the way. Our current leader of this country, he'll say things and they'll get up there and they'll correct him. Well, that's what happened in this case. So shortly after the article was published, the Vatican issued a statement that claimed the article was not a faithful transcript. And that the meeting between Pope Francis and Scalfari was a private meeting and not a formal interview. Or I guess it doesn't matter what you say in a, in a private meeting. Now, even though, again, the church claims that this was not a, quote, faithful transcript from the report anyway given from Newsweek, based on the transcript, the Pope said, there is no hell. There is the disappearance of sinful souls. That is annihilationism. That is precisely what we believe. Well, we may never know the truth of what the Pope really believes on this issue, we certainly see some evidence that he may be in agreement with what we believe. This was quite a revelation. I saw this years ago. I kind of keep these things. And as, as uh, I think Jose would say in my back pocket, just in case. But it is quite startling that the Pope would admit, if this is true, I lean toward it being true. I lean toward just kind of covering things up. It's funny the Vatican, again, had to issue this, this correction based on, based on what the Pope said. The reality is, though, the Pope, along with most ministers, obviously most even denominations of the most ministers, they know the truth. They know the truth. They know things like Yahweh's name or the, the Father's name. They know it's Yahweh. They know that the Sabbath is a Sabbath. You know, if you ask a minister, you really pin them down. When is a Sabbath? Was it ever really done away with most? No, theologically, biblically. They know that the Sabbath was never done away with. But they will say, if I do this... I will lose the congregation. And I've seen that, actually. I've seen men, in fact, years ago when we were on TV, a guy called in and said, I've been watching your program. I've started teaching what you believe. First, I introduced, 
I can't remember which one it was, but he said, first I introduced, maybe it was a name, doesn't matter. He says, I lost half the congregation. Half. And then he said, I introduced the Sabbath. I lost the other half. Now he's without a congregation because he simply taught the truth. Most know the truth. Most understand the truth. But they simply ignore it because they know that the majority will never accept it, just as we see. Just as we've seen here for 25 years, the truth or the majority will never accept the truth. I want to transition out to the New Testament, consider some of the evidence we find for this notion of ever burning hell of fire. I think we have a really good foundation, though, from what we saw in the Old Testament. First one here is Mark 9, 43 through 48. It says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for you to enter in halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not and their fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Yahshua describes hell here as a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. By the way, this worm not, not dying this is also something we find in the Old Testament. Isaiah is where we find this phrase. Whereas we saw from the Old Testament, the phrase shall not be quenched does not mean forever. It's important that we understand how the Hebrews would have understood these terms. Remember, Armas, the Messiah, he was a Jew. He was a Jew. In fact, the early converts to the assembly were Jews. They were all Jews. They, were, they would have had this Hebraic mind. They would have understood what it meant what this phrase meant. They would have understood based on how it was used in Jeremiah, how it was used in Ezekiel. They would have understood historically does not mean this perpetual burning forever. Again, Judas suffered the same fate, Scripture says, and yet we know that the fires are not burning. This punishment is not forever. What Yahshua is simply saying here and what he's referring to here is Yahweh's destruction or annihilationism. And this is the same meaning where it says the worm will not die. The worm will not die until there is nothing else to consume. But as long as there is something to consume, the worms will continue to feed upon that corpse. As it does in nature. You know, as a side note, have you ever thought about how a loving Heavenly Father could allow his creation to burn and suffer forever? This seems so counterintuitive for me. Seems counter to who Yahweh is, to his character. Since contradictory to who he is, to believe that he would force a person who sinned, but force then that person to burn and suffer perpetually and forever, just seems against his nature. Yahweh is a loving, mighty one. Certainly he will show his wrath and judgment, but I just don't see him forcing someone to burn Forever it just seems to defy his moral character as we see in Scripture. Now, many will also use another passage, Matthew 13, 50, for evidence of an ever-burning hellfire. It says, And it shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be the wailing, or there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, the belief here is that Yahshua is describing the ever-burning hellfire through this phrase, wailing and gnashing of teeth. So they're so they're in fire, they're burning forever and ever, and they're wailing forever and ever, and they're gnashing their teeth forever and ever, perpetually without end. Where that's what most would want you to believe. But I believe we can explain this, the suffering, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth, by simply being thrown into the lake of fire. You see, we believe in a lake of fire. We believe in Gehenna. We believe that there is going to be fire. We believe that the wicked... Those who defy Yahweh will burn. And believe me, when they do, there will be the gnashing of teeth. 
There will be wailing, but it's not going to be forever. But there will be anguish when you consider being burnt alive. So we don't believe in hell. We don't believe you're going to burn forever. We do believe in a punishment. We do believe in Gehenna. We do believe that there's going to be a lake of fire. We believe that there will be burning. We believe that there will be the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. But again, this doesn't say that it's forever. It just simply says that there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And of course, there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There will be a consequence for how we live life. A lot of people today, they don't believe in anything. And they believe that when they die, that that's it. No, that's not it. If you believe that you're going to live life as you will, and you live a sinful life and unrepentant life, and you refuse to change and you know better, well, in your future, there's going to be wailing and the gnashing of teeth. That's what Yahshua says. So I think it's important that while we recognize that there's not an ever-burning hell fire, there is fire, there is burning, and there is wailing, and there is gnashing of teeth, and there will be horrific, horrific, pain involved in that. Now another passage often used is Matthew 25 verse 41 it says then shall he say unto them of a left on the left hand depart from me you cursed is an everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Joshua warns here of says everlasting fire and everlasting punishment. But again, as we've already seen from the Old Testament, from Scripture, everlasting does not mean forever. It simply means that this will not be quenched until Yahweh's purpose, until his will has been fulfilled. And in this case, the purpose is the destruction of the wicked. You see, that fire will burn until Yahweh's enemies, until those who defied him are burned and consumed. The land of Judah suffered the punishment of everlasting fire, that fire, would not, fire that would not be quenched. And yet we know historically and now that it is not burning. Something we haven't talked about just real quickly is the Hebrew word olam. That's forever. Forever, olam, everlasting. Well, this word can mean forever. It also is used in time for time in general. In fact, according to the uh, vines, This word refers to simple duration. So alum does not always mean forever. It simply means a duration of time. Again, in this case, a duration of time until Yahweh's purpose, until Yahweh's will has been fulfilled through the consumption or consuming of the wicked. Punishment refers to a state that is everlasting while punishing refers to something continuous. We see punishment here. Yahshua is confirming here that the state of judgment will will be forever. In other words, once you're consumed, that's it. That state's going to be forever. But not a continuous torment. In fact, there's one passage. There's one passage that just trumps everything. And, and for me, there's no getting around this. And I don't know how theologians, ministers can read this and, and still believe in an ever-burning hellfire. Now, some of you may know where I'm going. Hopefully most of you do. Jeremiah, or Jude, that's Jeremiah, Jude, Jude 7. It says here, there's no chapters, by the way. I always want to say Jude 1-7. I know it's not right. I almost said it today. I just like Jude 1-7, but there is, there's, so Jude 7, Jude verse 7. It says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. Notice that. I, I noticed that this morning. It says Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them. It's interesting. Was it just Sodom and Gomorrah? So Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, which is, uh, or we, we know that uh, homosexuality is what was occurring there. The word is pernia, I believe, in the Greek. It says, in going after strange flesh, or set forth as an example for what? What does it say here? They are set forth as an example for the suffering, the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah suffered eternal fire. So what do we see here? We see again that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, it says, suffered the vengeance of eternal or forever fire. 
So those who believe that eternal fire means or forever, forever burning, where do we find evidence today that Sodom and Gomorrah is still burning? Do we? Do we see any evidence in the Middle East, some city in the Middle East has been consumed, consuming or burning for, I don't know, 4,000 years? I don't know of any city, do you? Is there any city still burning 4,000 years after the fact? That's what it says here. They suffer the example of eternal fire. But again, we know that there's no, there's no example of that. Now, in our 2016 trip to Israel with the elder Don Esposito, we went to a uh, location that he believes is the old ancient city of Gomorrah. It was located, it's located right below the uh, Masada, right along the Dead Sea. In fact, when you're in Masada, Masada is pretty high. And you can look down on the valley and you can see, the, of course, the uh, Dead Sea. You can also see this area where he believes is, is the old city of Gomorrah. And what's striking is, it's all brown, by the way, it's the Judean desert. It's all brown, but it's like a white. It's, it's like a white ash. And it's just there. Everywhere around this location is brown, like a light brown. But around uh, this area, and, and um, looking out to the audience here, Brother Wilson and others were there. I think he, yeah, I know you were there, and Ryan and others. But um, it was white. In fact, I rarely take this out. I have a display case in my office. But here is an example of ash. Now, when I say ash, this entire area, I don't know how big it was, I, I never got dimensions, but it's a big area. And you, you can climb almost forever on these big mounds. And I, I climbed pretty high. I said, though, Don warned us, don't get up to the top because you can fall through because it's ash. But anyway, this is a hard, I mean, you know, thousands of years, piece of ash. And even more importantly, and supposedly, from what I understand, there's not many areas, in fact, there's really no areas where you find this sulfur, but they have sulfur balls scattered, and they're kind of hard to find now. These people scavenge the area, but, but uh, these are sulfur balls, and, uh, and you can smell it. Can, you can kind of still smell the, the sulfur uh, with it, but they're scattered all throughout this area. So you have this ash, and it's, it, there's nothing there, by the way. There's nothing there. There's no plants. There's nothing there. It is, it is a place of ash with sulfur scattered throughout. I, I believe that it's likely, likely the um, city. And I can assure you, being there, it's not burning. It's not burning. It's ash, there's sulfur, but it's not burning. Now, again, supposedly, I, from what I've been told, there's really nothing else like this place on earth that we know of, and maybe there is, but certainly don't know of any, and it's right there in the Holy Land, in the south, again, right by Masada near the Dead Sea. One of the amazing things about this, again, location is just the sulfur, and the sulfur balls, it's almost, again, Yahweh rained brimstone, sulfur and brimstone on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, this is, um, if it is true, it's quite amazing that we can hold this and uh, if it is, does go back to this, uh, that destruction, I believe there's a good, good possibility it does. But again, we see here that, to me, undeniable evidence. The Sodom and Gomorrah suffered, it says, the fate of eternal fire. And we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is no longer burning. Showing that this concept of eternal fire, showing this concept of the fire shall not be quenched, does not mean forever. It simply refers to the totality of Yahweh's destruction to the annihilation that he will bring to those who defy his word. And again, that's why we believe in annihilationism versus this concept of a ever-burning fire. You know, as believers, I just want to close by saying this. It's important that we, again, prove all things. We need to prove what we believe. We need to believe, uh, prove what we believe doctrinally, theologically. And this, again, goes for whatever it is, whatever we believe in. So I pray that the message has been a good reminder, a good review for you. And, I, and, and again, for those who may be new, 
to this. You know, maybe this is the first message you're watching online and say, wow, you know, that's a lot. I would encourage you to really study this out, to really study this out, because I believe if you do, you're going to find that this is the truth. There is no heaven. We don't go to heaven. There is no hell fire. It's the grave. And that there is no rapture. So I'd hate for people to be disappointed when they're waiting for that rapture. So I pray that this has been a good review, a blessing to you. And, and again, for those who may be new to this message, I would encourage you not to dismiss this, because I'm sure that's the, that's the thing we want to do, but to really study it out and take it seriously. May Yahweh bless you.